Once again, we hear the reading of God's Word from the Old Testament found in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. Brothers, this is the Word of God. After his return from the defeat of Caledonomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Avram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Avram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Avram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Avram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Avram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten or what the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. The New Testament lesson from which our sermon comes is found in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and you can find that on page 1004 of your Pew Bibles. Once again, we hear the New Testament lesson from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. This too, brothers and sisters, is the word of God. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives." One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Word of God so far, let us pray that God will bless the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and ears uh, to the kingdom of God. In this text this morning, help us to be keen on listening to your word and following it. 
Help us, Father, to hear the law convicting us of our sin and also the gospel convicting us of eternal life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Congregation of Christ and Friends, at the end of chapter 6 of Hebrews, the author points out that your hope is vested in Jesus, who is presently in the inner uh, place behind the curtain. And by that he means where Jesus is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. In this high position of authority, Jesus resides as your eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And by that he means that Jesus is like Melchizedek in his eternal aspects. Now in chapter 7, the author takes up the significance of Jesus as your eternal high priest who is like Melchizedek. And since Jesus is like Melchizedek, it behooves us to understand who Melchizedek is. The comparison between the two will demonstrate the greatness of Jesus as your eternal high priest. And that is the point of the sermon and the point of the text. Uh, Abraham was great. The Levites were great. Melchizedek was great. But Jesus is greater than all. First then you understand indeed how great Abraham, the Levites, and Melchizedek were. And then secondly, in comparison, you understand that Jesus is much greater and this is for your salvation. Notice that Hebrews chapter 7 really is a commentary on the story that you find in Genesis chapter 14, our Old Testament reading this morning. In this story, uh, Abraham, Avram at this point, and his lot nephew find themselves in the midst of a great battle in the ancient Near East. This happens to be a battle between kings of the East and kings of the West. The kings of the East are those who come as far away as modern-day Iran. And the kings of the West refer to the kings who are actually in the land of Canaan. And there's this great battle uh, for land, for power, which is always the case in the ancient Near East, uh, uh, this great battle that's going on. Abraham becomes involved because the eastern kings swoop down into the promised land. This land has been given to uh, Abraham and his descendants. So he's in charge of protecting the land, taking care of the land. But also his nephew Lot resides in um, Sodom, which is a part of the promised land. So in both cases, Abraham must act. He must protect the land, and he must certainly protect his nephew and his family. Well, as the battle goes on, the eastern kings win, and they take uh, spoils of the war from the western kings. Now, not to be outdone, uh, Abraham gathers his own contingent of men and goes and fights the eastern kings, which is really quite amazing because these powerful western kings cannot defeat the uh, eastern kings. But Abraham comes along with a small group and defeats the eastern kings. In the process, he uh, takes Lot and his family back to the promised land. And at this point, something really interesting happens. Abraham's in the land, promised land again, and out come two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, who happens to be Melchizedek. Now the king of Sodom comes out demanding that he have some of the spoils of war from Abraham. He says that he's not asking for much, he just wants some of his own people back. 
Abraham can keep uh, the other spoils. But Melchizedek comes out, bringing bread, wine, and blessings. He's there not to take anything from Abraham, but to give to Abraham, and indeed to bless him. The king of Sodom is selfish and reflects the character of his own people, who are exceedingly evil. Melchizedek is one who gives, who blesses, and reflects the character of his God and Abraham's God, who's a God of abundance, the God of heaven and earth. Now, no one knows uh, to which Salem the text refers here. Jerusalem used to be called Salem. Maybe he's the king of that place, or Salem is another area. Nobody really knows. But one thing for sure is that Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, blesses Abraham with uh, verbal blessings, but also physical blessings of bread and wine. The bread and wine are um, gifts of um, hospitality. Um, Likewise, though, Abraham honors Melchizedek as God's priest by giving him a tenth of the spoils of war. So that's the story. And the author of Hebrews takes up this story, using it to explain how great Melchizedek is compared to Abraham and the Levites. Well, the author of Hebrews noticed he doesn't have to take time here to explain to the church how great Abraham was. Everybody knows that Abraham is the recipient of God's blessings. They know that he is the grandfather, as it were, of the nation of Israel. Um, All Jews pride themselves in being the sons and daughters of Abraham. Abraham is great. He is a man of faith. He's a man who believes God and follows him. But the Levites are great, too. There are 12 tribes of Israel. One of those tribes, the Levites, are set apart to serve God in the tabernacle and the temple. And because they are not apportioned uh, any land, uh, those from the rest of the tribes have to give the Levites a tenth of their agricultural spoils. That's to support them in their duties in the tabernacle and the temple. And also, interestingly, the uh, ironic priests who do the work within the temple, not they're not temple Uh, support staff, but uh, those who work right inside the tabernacle and the temple, those also receive a 10% giving from uh, the Levites. But all this to say the Levites are very important because they serve God directly in this capacity within the tabernacle and the temple. Well, Abraham and the Levites were mentioned in order to provide a uh, contrast between them and Melchizedek, who is far greater So even though Abraham was great, Melchizedek was greater. After all, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of his spoils. So you don't do that unless the person to whom you're speaking or giving is greater. But also, as the author of Hebrews says, the greater always blesses the inferior. That's just a standard uh, idea in the ancient Near East. The greater blesses the inferior. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, not the other way around. This is surprising. But also, even though the Levites came later and had such a great responsibility to serve God in the sanctuary, they, as the author say, uh, says, are brothers of Abraham. They are his descendants, which makes them on the same level of Abraham. And also, as he goes on to say, it's like the Levites were giving tithes 
to Melchizedek uh, through his loins. That is, their genetic makeup is the same as Abraham. Well, all this to say that despite their greatness, Abraham and the Levites were subordinate to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and a king of peace. Moreover, he was without father, without mother, without a genealogy. No beginning of days, nor end of days. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now this description adds to the mystery of this man who appears out of nowhere. Everybody knows who the king of Sodom was. He's one of the kings of the West. Who's this king of Salem who appears really very quickly, bringing bread and wine, and he's a priest of the Most High God? Is he an angel? Somebody who has no beginning or end or genealogy? Uh, some people in the history of interpretation think that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. That this is Jesus appearing before he actually has a body and soul. Well, no, this is not an angel. This is not the pre-incarnate Christ. After all, the author says that he's one resembling the Son of God. It doesn't say that he is the Son of God, but resembles the Son of God. And so what you have to understand here is that the author's not being literal. He doesn't mean that Melchizedek really has no father or mother or genealogy beginning or end of days. Rather, there's no record of his genealogy. Because those things are left aside so that he can be a prophet of Jesus Christ. The point is that Melchizedek is like the Son of God and his eternal aspects. That is the point the author wishes to make. Now the eternal aspects of Melchizedek reflect the eternal aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So if you go back to the Genesis chapter 14 story, after Abraham's battle... The gospel intrudes happily into Abraham's life. In a matter of speaking, it was like God was lowering the kingdom of God to Abraham, and really before the king of Sodom as well. That is, Melchizedek was speaking of a future time in which the kingdom of God would come in the person of the Son of God. Daniel's very interested in this. Uh, He talks about the Son of God descending from the heavens. That's also a prophetic utterance that Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, is coming to bring in the kingdom of God. But also, Melchizedek is saying, look, Abraham, you're not a self-made man. The defeat or the uh, victory that you had over these eastern kings was not your own power and doing. It was God's. So notice what Melchizedek says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Avram by God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, the creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Avram, you did not do that. God did that. And so Melchizedek appeared out of nowhere to bless Abraham, to reveal to him that God watched over him and was blessing him, really, with the gifts of heaven. And notice right after the story, God makes a covenant with Abraham according to Genesis chapter 15. Now what happens in that covenant? God is entering into a relationship with Abraham and his descendants, saying that he will indeed bless him and his descendants in the land forever. 
that's an eternal blessing really of heaven. That they will have eternal life. But also this is God saying that I'm in charge, Abraham. I'm blessing you. I'm taking things over. And so what's so wonderful about this covenant making ceremony is that Abraham does nothing. In fact, he's asleep during the whole ceremony. God is the one who walks through the split animal halves, calling down blessings upon himself. And so you see the gospel there and everywhere in the scriptures is about God acting by himself to secure eternal life for his people. The specific revelation of that gospel is found in Christ, the high priest of God, greater than Abraham, greater than the Levites, greater even than Melchizedek, the strange king of Salem, who's priest in the Most High God. Well, that is the author's point in Hebrews chapter 7. And you understand Jesus' greatness in comparison to Abraham, the Levites, and Melchizedek. So Jesus is your eternal high priest, which is reflected by this person, Melchizedek. Remember, when the author says in chapter 6 that Jesus has become a high priest uh, forever after the order of Melchizedek, he's not talking here about succession. That is, he isn't saying that first there was Melchizedek and later on there was Jesus in this eternal order. No, rather he's saying Jesus is like Melchizedek in terms of his eternal aspects. But then you have to ask yourself, it doesn't really seem like Jesus is like this. That is, he's not like this description. This description of Melchizedek. After all, Jesus does have an earthly father, Joseph, and has an earthly mother, Mary. Uh, The Gospels are very interested in the genealogy of Jesus, right? Matthew especially, the uh, the genealogy uh, draws a line back to David and then back to Adam. Uh, Certainly Jesus does have a beginning of days, right? We celebrate Advent every year. Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. And he has an end of days. I mean, his, his days end horribly on the cross and then he's buried. So what gives? What is the author here talking about? Well, first of all, Jesus really doesn't have an earthly father. Uh, Joseph is just his legal father. And this is where you begin to see the author's point. Uh, the author is focusing on the deity of Jesus, not the humanity of Jesus, but rather the deity of Jesus. And this is one of those passages, by the way, uh, which is a great proof text for the deity of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus has no earthly father. He has a heavenly father, but no earthly father, no heavenly mother, no beginning of days, no end of days, no genealogy in terms of his divinity. And so you see, he's much more unique than Melchizedek, who suddenly appears to Abraham and to Sodom, by the way. That is, he appears also to the king of Sodom. So when Melchizedek appeared... He was not only a prophet of the kingdom of God, but he was also a priest. He was revealing to Abraham and to the king of Sodom, if he would have listened, that the kingdom of God was eternal and secured by a priest like himself. He's saying again in a matter of words that the kingdom of God is going to in the future drop from heaven in the eternal Son of Man and the Son of God. 
This is the one who would be the king of righteousness and the king of peace. That is, he would confer imputed righteousness to people and he would create peace not between kings, battling kings, but peace between God and man. That is a great cry and the need of this world. So what is the point to all this? The point is that God has acted in history to demonstrate that he sustains his people. We have to remember that Abraham is a man who struggled with faith. Yes, he is marked by his faith. He is justified by grace through faith alone. That's what Genesis 15.6 is all about. He believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. He was a man of faith. But he was also just like you. He struggled with his faith. We have to recognize, again, going back to the story of Genesis chapter 14, what happens after he has this victory. It's not by accident that the king of Sodom is one of the kings that comes to Abraham. Really, the king of Sodom is like Satan. And the king of Salem, Melchizedek, represents God. So here's Abraham, after his great defeat, presented by God and the devil, really. The devil, that is the king of Sodom, tempts him. And you don't always understand this unless you understand the way in which spoils act uh, during this time. If Abraham would have kept some of the spoils, according to uh, the king of Sodom's uh, permission, he would have been giving the king of Sodom uh, some due. That is saying, I will let you tell me what I can do with these spoils. But notice what Abraham does very vigorously here in the text. He says, no, I won't take anything from you, not even a sandal strap, so that people won't say, you made me rich. This wasn't a pride issue. This was a faith issue. It was Abraham saying, you will not tell me what to do with the spoils. You have all the spoils back. Because this priest over here, this priest of God, is a representative of Yahweh, my God, and I serve him. I will receive bread and wine from his priest. I will receive blessings from his priest. I will not receive your word. The fall began when Eve listened and engaged the devil in dialogue. Abraham doesn't do that here. This king, this king of Sodom, is representing the devil, and Abraham has nothing to do with him. But the point here is that your faith is strengthened by God. Abraham needed Melchizedek at that point, as you need Christ, your great eternal high priest now, and every day of your life. You do not walk through this world by faith in yourself, but only by faith in Christ. It's not like so many people say today. You come to faith in Jesus and then you work really hard. You get a lot of gospel at the beginning and then you get a lot of law. No, you need the gospel every single day of your life. Hearing that Jesus is your great eternal high priest who mediates on your behalf right now and helps you every single day of your life. If there's any victory at all, it's Christ's victory over sin, not your victory. Well, last time we emphasized the power of God's promise and oath. And we illustrated that by the fact of, or the story that, you know, what if your daughter had to have surgery, <clears throat> the surgery's over, and you get a chance to talk to somebody coming out of the surgical room? Who are you going to talk to? 
You're not going to talk to the clerk. You're not going to talk to the nurse, not even the physician's assistant. You wish to speak to the surgeon. You want to hear from his or her mouth what's going to happen to your daughter, what the prognosis is. It's uh, his promise, as it were, his oath that counts. Well, now this week, the illustration shifts. If you're about to go into surgery, say your daughter needs to have surgery, who are you going to look for? You're not going to ever be satisfied with a surgeon who's subpar. You will travel, you will scrape together every bit of your money to find the best possible surgeon to perform that surgery. And what happens when you find the best surgeon to do that surgery? Your hope and your confidence soars. Now that's just an illustration on the human level. But how much more is it, or how much more important is it, if you believe that Jesus is the supreme God, the greatest, who's in charge of your salvation? Yes, he is human, but he's also eternal God. And that's the point here. Your Savior is one without father or mother, without beginning of days, without end of days. This is the indestructible God who's in charge of your salvation. How much more believing that God is a great surgeon who's excised sin through Christ, receiving his obedience and sacrificial death in your behalf. The truth of the gospel and Jesus' present heavenly intercession on your behalf is what helps you to stand strong against temptation to yield to the devil. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, do not be fooled by the deception of the devil. That is, that he really isn't a problem. Or maybe he isn't really real. Or that you really don't struggle with great temptation in this life. You do, whether you feel it or not. Just like Abraham, your, your faith is tested all the time. You could say to yourself, I'm a man or a woman or a child of great faith. Don't say that. Say that any faith that you have is a gift of God. And that faith is strengthened by the Word of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that Spirit who's ushered forth from Christ, your eternal High Priest. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.